I'm reading out of the NIV this morning. Ezekiel 18, verse 23. Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord? Rather, I am not pleased when they turn... Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? But if a righteous man turns from his righteousness and commits sin and does the same detestable things the wicked man does, will he live? None of the righteous things he has done will be remembered. Because of the unfaithfulness he is guilty of and because of the sins he has committed, he will die. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not just. Hear, O house of Israel, is my way unjust? Is it not your ways that are unjust? If a righteous man turns from his righteousness and commits sin, he will die for it. Because of the sin he has committed, he will die. But if a wicked man turns away from the wickedness he has committed and does what is just and right, he will save his life. Because he considers all the offenses he has committed and turns away from them, he will surely live. He will not die. Yet the house of Israel says, The way of the Lord is not just. Are my ways unjust? O house of Israel, is it not your ways that are unjust? Therefore, O house of Israel, I will judge you, each one according to his ways, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent. Turn away from all your offenses, then sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourself of all the offenses you have committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent and live. Amen. If you've been around the Yeshua Tzion for a while, you will hear Yiddish words peppered in conversations from time to time. Um, by the way, that really isn't a whole lot different than society as a whole because of the, the fact that we have a fairly high representation um, of Jewish people in the entertainment industry. You get Yiddish words peppered and mixed in with um, everyday language, so you hear people talking about somebody trying to schmooze somebody else, um, uh, or shtick, lots of words with sh. Um, they're mostly vivid, not really crude, but uh, it kind of sounds a little um, sounds a little earthy, but. Uh, James referred earlier to kvetching, which is complaining, and uh, you know that's something some of us have PhD degrees in, and uh, I've been doing some of that. You know, my uh, my body is gradually recovering, but um, not at the speed that I would like, and so there've been mornings when I would get up and I would not get up and jump to attention and say, Lord, uh, I'm reporting for duty, but I would kvetch and ah, Lord, what's going on? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm hurting, I'm struggling, etc., etc. You know, you can fill in 
the blanks, we all do that from time to time. And uh, what I've found for me anyways works is putting on a worship CD and uh, gradually the tone of my conversation with the Almighty changes from complaining to, okay, Lord, you've got things under control today. Let's see what you have in mind. But uh, part of the, the process for us is learning to deal with a sense of entitlement. You know, things happen. We come into situations that are difficult, particularly in terms of relationships. And uh, relationships go south sometimes. And we feel entitled to our sin, you know, to our anger, to our bitterness. Uh, we feel the need to, to have our cause justified before God and the whole world. You know what I'm saying? Uh, perhaps I'm the only one who's ever felt this way here. Um, I see everybody's silent. Um, but that's something, that's something that is part of human nature is to avoid taking the responsibility upon ourselves for things we have legitimately done and externalizing it and put the blame out there on somebody else. Uh, that's part of society. It's human nature and yes, it is part of society. Um, you may have seen people get on different uh, talk shows and um, dishonor their parents and blame them for failures and shortcomings. Um, about 20-some, actually closer to 30 years ago, there was a gal who was the um, daughter of a Hollywood celebrity, um, Joan Crawford. And she wrote a book called Mommy Dearest, in which she basically laid it all out, all the dirty laundry for everybody to see, um, because she wanted to let everybody know, this is what I've had to put up with. And, um, and so it is part of how we process things. And it is difficult when, or inappropriate, I should say, when we do that and externalize and blame others, it's especially odious and difficult when we blame God. When we say something like, Lord, I do not care for the deck of cards that you have dealt out to me. I look at him and I look at her and I see that they seem to have a charmed life and you, for some reason, have seen fit to allow all these difficult circumstances to come into my life. By the way, part of reality for me in ministry is as you learn to meet people and I interact with them and talk to them, you see all the folks that you thought were born with silver spoons in their mouth, uh, you see that there is a totally different reality. Uh, all of us put our pants one leg at a time. All of us struggle. That, that's part of a human condition today. But in any event, we tend to want to put a reality out there, um, externalize, 
and blame other folks and at the same time feel like we're entitled to our own sin, to our own junk. Um, it hurts too much, you know, he or she did me dirt and so on and so forth. I'm justified in, in maintaining or even cultivating and putting miracle grow on my anger and bitterness. Um, and this is somewhat the picture that, that we see in, in Ezekiel's time. Um, again, there's nothing new under the sun. Same kind of mindset. And in Ezekiel's time, what you have, this, by the way, is 2,600 years ago. Um, you had the second wave of exile by the Babylonians. You had three basic waves of exile uh, by the Babylonians. And finally, the Babylonians came and destroyed the city and exiled everybody. Ezekiel was part of the second uh, wave of exiles. And God is saying to him, What right do you have to complain? And by, by the way, you think that when people were hauled from their country into exile, that that would be a, a basic wake-up call, as in, wake up and smell the coffee. You see a lot of the same kind of patterns of, of sin uh, in Ezekiel's society in Babylon and, of course, in Israel as well. And part of the picture is they're quoting a very popular proverb um, that we see earlier in chapter 18. The fathers ate sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge. Now, what does that mean? Well, it, it's really not so much a sense of eating a bad apple, a sour apple, and then doing one of these uh, puckering half your face into an expression of, of uh, disgust. Uh, the Hebrew word there for set on edge literally means they become dull and blunt. What does that mean? It means that for one reason or another, these teeth have lost their ability to chew properly and that a person at this point, will have to gum their food. So if, if you connect the dots, what, what these folks are saying, that they are in exile because of their forefathers sinning and God taking and punishing the whole nation because of what happened in the past. And furthermore, that they really, have, really had nothing to do with that. Uh, again, same kind of sense of entitlement. And by the way, as you read Ezekiel, you see that the moment God brought the people of Israel, the people of Judah actually, out uh, and into Babylon, you would think that the sinful patterns would stop. But they really didn't. They continued. That is why you have Ezekiel um, getting in the face of the people and basically rebuking them for a sense of entitlement. By the way, for me, the exquisite 
idea of entitlement comes in a song. It goes back 50 years. Entitled Officer Krupke. If you lived long enough or if you've seen West Side Story, you'll know what I'm talking about. It's classic. And I absolutely had to read it to you because it illustrates what Scripture is talking about. This is the Jets talking to the local policeman. They're kindly, Sar Sergeant Krupke, you've got to understand, it's just our upbringing, our bringing up key that gets us out of hand. Our mothers are all junkies, our fathers are all drunk. Golly Moses, naturally, we're punks. Gee, Officer Krupke, we're very upset. We never had the love that every child ought to get. We ain't no delinquents. We're misunderstood. Deep down inside us, there is good. Isn't that the mindset that you see all around? And the Lord's response to it is to say, you guys have the nerve. You guys have this unbelievable gall to imply that you have absolutely no responsibility in what has happened. And the Lord makes it very clear, this proverb is going to stop. You're not going to be saying that anymore. Uh, the worst part of that is that they said in verse 25, yet you say the Lord is not just, which is particularly galling, because the idea here is that when God divvies out his justice, he does it very capriciously. Well, let's see. Uh, I'm having a bad hair day, and James looks like a likely candidate. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to hammer him. Uh, well, let, let's see. Sharon looks like a good candidate. We're, we're going to hammer her without any sense of rhyme or reason. And, and the Lord gets in their face and rebukes them for not only the sense of entitlement, but also they're accusing him of injustice. And part of the dilemma here is that you have a couple of things that seem to be in contradiction or in a, they're a paradox. Because on one hand, Scripture makes it real clear that our sin impacts the life of other people. I think that's a no-brainer, especially after um, what happened on July 20th with James Holmes uh, deciding that he was going to blow people up and kill them for, I don't know, God knows what, what demonic-inspired reason. And by the way, uh, the theater is now going to be refurbished and reopened sometime later, later in the year if you were dying to go back in it and, and watch another late-night movie. Um, our actions have consequences on ourselves and on other people. And if you're a parent, you're, you're painfully aware of the fact that your actions your actions impact the life of, of your kids and their kids and even in a broader sense in a congregational family mishpacha, your actions impact the life of other people 
none of us is an island. None of us lives unto themselves. You know, we sometimes have this silly notion that what I do really doesn't impact him or really doesn't impact her. The truth is, people are watching what we do, what we say. And particularly if we claim to be those who are followers of Yeshua and we do crazy things, it, it plays very negatively on, on the Lord's reputation. You know, it's like the folks that used to have these bumper stickers that said, wave or honk if you love Yeshua, and then would cut in front of everybody else and, and do all kinds of crazy things, road rage kinds of things on the road, and you look at them and say, hmm, interesting. But this is what, what the Word of God says. The Lord is saying there are consequences, and because of that, God has to mete out judgment corporately, not just on individuals, but corporately. In the Torah states, you shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the father to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. That's a very, very difficult passage in Scripture, isn't it? And you see it at play in a number of circumstances. You see, for example, Echan, Achan, uh, and what he did in Joshua chapter 7, how that his actions impacted the whole nation. Um, for, and that happens for good or for evil. And... Um, and that's part of reality. We see that, for example, in, in the stories of the kings. In First and Second Kings, First and Second Samuel, you see that if, if the kings got this crazy notion in their heads to follow idols, the whole nation eventually followed them. There are consequences to our actions, and part of reality is that God judges corporate entities. God judges nations. He judged the nation of Israel because of the accumulation of sin over centuries. And I dare say that if or as the United States veers away from a godly set of standards, we can expect God's judgment as well. So, so that's reality on one hand. But on the other hand, Scripture makes it real clear that none of us have the right to take a fatalistic approach and say, well, well what the heck? Uh, God is going to judge, so I'll do whatever. Because on one hand, you have Scripture saying that God judges the impact of the sins of people as they touch others. At the same time, Scripture is very clear about individual responsibility and how that even in societies that are absolutely rotten and societies that, that have received the sentence of God's judgment, such as the Canaanites, God still provides opportunities for people to turn and repent and receive life. For me, the, the most vivid example of that, of course, is Rahab. She was part of, of, of a society that was 
deemed by God as worthy of being judged because of their corruption, because of their idolatry, because of their bloodshed. And yet this woman heard about the message of God's deliverance for the people of Israel and she received the message. She turned away from her idols. She embraced the God of Israel and she was incorporated into the community of faith. And we have other examples like that throughout Scripture. The message simply is individual responsibility is always part of the picture. It's always on the screen. And that we cannot do an Officer Krupke routine or blame somebody else, blame our parents, blame society, externalize the problem out there. We have to be willing to say, okay, God, what's my portion? What's my part in this? God judges people on the basis of attitudes and actions as individuals. We see that not only in the Tanakh in the Old Testament, we see it in the New Testament, folks. You have some very vivid examples of people who are out of line and God killing them. Ananias and Sapphira was a good example. Also in Corinth, people would bebop to Yeshua's supper, uh, somewhat drunk, disrespectful of, of what Yeshua's supper meant. And Paul says, for this reason, some of you are sick. And some of you have died. In other words, God brought his judgment and, and put his sickness upon some of you guys and killed some of you because of your attitude towards Yeshua's Supper. So the point simply is, we see God judging in the prophets and seeing God judging in the nation of Israel. Folks, he hasn't changed. He has not changed. God judges today. And unfortunately, that message is lost to society as a whole, and it's also lost to many of us who are believers and followers of Yeshua. We have this notion that God loves us and He is our buddy and our pal and so on and so forth. Yes and no. Yes, He is. No, He is also the righteous judge who evaluates the videos of our life and judges constantly. And Scripture says that in this life, we will experience God's judgment either for blessing or for discipline. Hebrews is very clear about that. Hebrews chapter 12 states that because God loves us, He disciplines us. In fact, Hebrews puts it this way, if He didn't discipline you, Think about what your status with God would actually be. You would be someone who is illegitimate. Now God really wouldn't care. So the point is God judges. He continues to judge. In fact, in 1 Peter we're told judgment has to begin in the house of God. Ouch. Why? Because if we who are supposed to be light and salt are dim and unsalty, how is the world around us to be impacted and to hear about the good news of Yeshua and see the power of God at work? So God 
continues to do that, continues to bring about judgment. And if we really know who God is and understand His nature, understand His love for us, we would welcome His judgment. Think about that. We would welcome His judgment. Why? Because we would want Him to be able to say to us, look, you were on target here. I want to vindicate you for what you did here. It was right on the money. It was right in line with my will. Lining up with the plumb bob. True and straight here. But on the other hand, if we do something that is out, out there in China, that is something that has come from the deep pockets of ooze inside of us, don't we want the Lord to be able to say to us, hey, there's a bunch of ooze and slime and algae down here that needs to be, needs to be addressed? Don't we want God, the Lord to come and, and shine His light and say, uh, let's deal with that? And if we know the Lord and if we love the Lord, if we understand that He's a righteous and a holy God, we will want to be like Him, righteous and holy people, and we'd, we would want him to come and cleanse and purge the, the yuck that's inside us. Amen? Amen? Thank you, Michael. I think you and I are probably uh, the only ones with pockets of ooze. <laughs> and so part of the picture here in Ezekiel is that he, he gives a scenario uh, because inquiring minds want to know, you know, what happens if this happens and what does God do if this happens, then what, what does God do if this happens? Well, there are three generations. One generation is you have a man who is righteous, righteous according to following God's commandments doing what God wants him, leading a life that pleases God, that's grandpa, then, the, then the, the son or the father, for some strange reason, just goes south and um, is violent and kills people and, and does all these awful things. It's like he, had, he has uh, oncogenes, you know, uh, some kind of mutation inside of spiritual mutation inside of him, and uh, then you have the grandson, who, despite being raised by this rotten father, make it, makes a choice that he wants to follow God. And so you have this scenario. And by the way, the scenario is played out in Scripture, because you you see three kings, and three of the kings of Judah. You have Ahaz, who was rotten and, and unbelieving. You have Hezekiah, who was a man of God. And then you had Manasseh, who was also rotten to the core. And you see how God deals differently with different people. And, and in, in the case of the man who is wicked, the Lord says, you're going to die. You're going to die. I'm going to punish you. And by the way, this is not talking about eternal life and salvation in that sense. It's talking about God determining punishment that takes place here on earth. 
By the way, Scripture speaks a lot about the fact that as we follow the Lord and as we obey Him, we can expect God's blessing. You say amen to that. And if on the other hand we choose to do things our way and determine that we know things better than God, well, we're going to smack our head against the wall a whole bunch of times until we wake up one day and say, you know, uh, maybe I don't want to smack my head against the wall and maybe God has a better plan and maybe I need to stop and be quiet long enough and listen and maybe I just need to follow His way. And as we do, then we experience God's blessing. Why? Because that's God's heart, folks. He wants to bless us. That's, that's what motivates Him. And part of reality is that we choose to believe a lie about who God is. And the lie is that God is a severe and harsh and capricious God who looks for ways to make our life miserable and who doesn't care. That's a lie. The Word of God over and over and over again says to us, I want to bless you. 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 Not in the silly and, and, and immature way that you hear sometimes with the excesses of the prosperity gospel. That's, an, that's a perversion of the truth. And the truth is God wants to bless us. And so that's the message that he's saying over and over again to, to these people, the exiles in Babylon. You have no business being fatalistic. You have no business feeling entitled to your sin. And furthermore, if you're foolish enough to think that you're going to experience God's judgment. And part of what we see here is again and again and again and again, both and. On one hand, God cannot be mocked. Paul tells us in Galatians 6, God cannot be mocked. Whatever it is that you sow, you will reap. If you sow garbage, you'll reap garbage. If you sow to, to the Spirit, you'll reap life everlasting. This is not some kind of a impersonal uh, karma routine. God is at work rewarding the good things we do and punishing the things that are not of Him. God cannot be mocked. On the other hand, as you read the prophets, you see the heart of God, folks. You see God's emotion being poured out in the prophets in a way that you don't see God's emotion poured out anyplace else. And here you have bookends, sort of a literary sandwich in 1823 and 1832. Do I take pleasure 
in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God. Rather, when they turn from their ways and live. It's one of these rhetorical questions. Do you, do you really think that, that I get delight in nuking people who are, who are rotten? Yes, they have to be punished, but do you, think, do you think it brings me any joy? Then in 32, it, same kind of message repeated again. I do not. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord. Option A, always, is repent and live See the same thing in 33.11. Say to them, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? Again, the double message is, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I take great delight on the other hand, when the wicked decide to turn from their, from their ways and live. Don't you see the Father's heart crying out here? You know, Yeshua's parable of the prodigal son is really not about the prodigal son. It is about the Father who has this unbelievable, senseless kind of love for his son. Love that makes absolutely no sense. This is where it comes from. The message is the father is crying out to the son and saying, don't go over the cliff. Don't do such a stupid thing. Why die? God has a good plan for your life. He's gifted you. He wants you to enjoy it. He wants you to make an impact. He wants your life to count. Why flush it? The phrase for turn is repeated here a number of times. As we've seen earlier in a couple of weeks ago in, in Hosea. Backing up to verse 30. Therefore, house of Israel, I will judge you, each one according to his ways, declares the Lord God. Repent. Turn from your all your offenses, then sin will no longer be your downfall. In other words, you choose to do things that, that are wrong, that are against God's standards, revealed standards, then what you can expect in your life is to be, uh, to, to be tottering around, to be stumbling around like someone who is stoned or drunk out of their minds. No purpose, no direction. If, on the other hand, you choose to follow God's ways, you know that His ways are ways of pleasantness. He orders your life. He gives a sense and purpose and meaning and shalom, wholeness. doesn't mean that, that there are no hard patches. Scripture is equally clear about the fact that as we follow God, 
part of what happens is we do come across hard patches. But the presence of God directs us and guides us as we go through those tough times. Remember, folks, that God's presence was very evident for the people of Israel in the desert. In the desert. And here the call by the prophet speaking for God is very, very urgent, very vivid. Rid yourself of all the offenses you have committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. The Hebrew word there, hashlichu, I won't ask you to pronounce it. literally means take it and throw it away from you. By the way, during this season, Orthodox Jewish people celebrate, a cer- observe a ceremony called Tashlich, which means the casting out, and they go to a, a body of water. They do that right where we live, and, and they take out crumbs, and they toss it on, on the water um, as a symbol of, of what... Micah chapter 6 tells us that God will take and cast you water, take your, cast your sins away. Why would you want to cast away, throw away your sin if you recognize how pernicious, how toxic it is? You know, if we really get the fact that our sin is toxic, will we want to clutch it to our to our chest and hug it and, and, and just hang on to it? Or, or will we want to put it someplace in a hazmat uh, pile and move away from it? Throw away your sin. And here Ezekiel makes a somewhat a radical statement. And get yourself a new heart and a new spirit. How on earth do you do that? Do you go to Walmart and and, uh, shop around and say, Okay, I'm going to get one of this and one of that? Things in scripture have to be put in context. They have to be compared with other places. And we see in earlier in chapter 11 and also in chapter 36 that we can get a new spirit, a new heart, new spirit. Why? Because God gives it to us and we want to receive it. Turn to the Lord. Receive from Him the needed transformation. And yes, folks, we all get our backs up when it comes to the subject of repentance. Especially things that seem to be intractable that just don't go away and you say, God, I tried everything and it just doesn't seem to work. I still have those sins. I feel like Lady Macbeth scrubbing away the sin and saying, out damn spot. And especially when we feel entitled to our sin. I mentioned that earlier. 
And by the way, during the 10 days of awe between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, Jewish tradition teaches people to put a premium on seeking other people and making things right with them. And by the way, this tradition is very much in line with the Word of God, both in the Torah and also in Yeshua's teaching. Remember Matthew 5, the Lord said, if you are praying and bringing an offering and you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, drop what you're doing. Go get squared away with them. And yet, we, we hang on to it. It hurts too much. I, I'm entitled to my sin. Uh, y- you know, so-and-so is such an awful so-and-so. And so we, we close ourselves off feeling like we need to be vindicated. Like we need God to step and say, yeah, you're right, you're right, absolutely right. Everything you did was right on the money. Guess what? It doesn't happen that way. It can't happen that way. Because we do some things right and then a whole mess of things that we don't do right. Why don't we want to come and repent? Well, we don't understand the love of the Father. We're afraid that if we come to God and say, Lord, I've sinned, that the Lord would slap us upside the head and make us ashamed even more than we currently are. We don't understand the Father's heart where He welcomes us to take that first step. Hosea, I will heal their waywardness and I would love them freely, generously. If you get that, then you'll want to cooperate with God. You'll want to come and say, Abba, Father, I know there's junk in me and I want to be holy because you're holy. And I want to have things out of my life that are displeasing to you. And I want to repent. Remember, folks, repentance is part of a cascade of things that lead to blessing in our life. If we repent and ask the Lord's forgiveness, and then what comes with that is forgiveness and cleansing and healing and restoration and blessing and increased fullness because the more junk gets purged out of our life, guess what? The more the Lord can fill us with more of Him. And yes, you may feel like, you know, life is hard. I have too much going on in my life. I don't have the energy to engage in this stuff. Why not make it God's problem? And give Him the key to the entire house to all the closets in your house that are full of junk and skeletons and cobwebs and dirt and say, Lord, would you please come and bring about thorough house cleaning in my life? 
I don't, have, I don't want to have any no trespassing sign on anything in my life. I want to welcome you to come and bring about thorough cleansing, thorough healing, because I want more of you. This is the season for us as we prepare to spend additional time in the Lord's presence as we respond to the welcome that He gives us to come and meet with Him during these appointed seasons, appointed feasts, the Moadim. Let's prepare for that. Let's prepare to come into His presence and recognize that He's a holy God. That He wants us, His people, to be a holy people. Let's pray. Abba Father, we, Abinu Malkainu, we stand before you. Humbled, Lord, and awed by the fact that you would welcome us into your presence. Lord God, that you instruct the angels, Lord God, to take off our poopy clothes and put on nice festal clothes as you did with Joshua, the high priest. Lord God, we, we thank you that you are at work to bring about this evaluation and judgment and discipline and cleansing and purging and refining, Lord God, for your honor and glory and for our best, for our edification, for our blessing. Lord God, we pray, we welcome you as a congregational mishpacha, as a family. Lord, would you please come and clean, clean us, Lord God, cleanse us of the things in our life that are not pleasing to you so that we can receive the fullness of your restoration, Lord, and revel in the fullness that you have for us, Lord. Lord God, I pray for each one of us. Lord, you know where each one of us struggles, where we have our intractable sins and areas, Lord, where we don't trust you or are not willing to trust you. We pray, Lord God, for your love to be poured out upon us because it is your chesed that leads us to repentance. We pray, Lord, that you will pour out your love upon us that that we would be overwhelmed by your love, Lord God, and see you for who you are and acknowledge you, Lord God, and, and, and desire, Lord God, to, uh, down deep, Lord, to welcome your cleansing to become holy people as your holy God. We pray, Lord God, that your spirit will do the work of conviction where conviction is necessary and that you would empower us, Lord God, to repent, to turn from our ways, to turn towards you, Lord, and to walk in the ways that you have prepared for us, ways of wholeness, shalom, Lord God, and blessing. Cause us, Lord, to hear your voice calling out to us, Lord. Shuva, shuva, repent, repent today, Lord. In Yeshua's name, amen.